Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. Suspiria 2018 or Giallo Politics Dance School. <sighs> Hello everyone and welcome to Giallo June, or as I keep saying, Gilles Jean. Uh, how is it going, John? Uh, not a bad, not a bad thing to compare it to, actually. There, there is a complicated, there is a complicated discourse. I would, I would be so happy if we got like a, a Giallo or Fantastique uh, film that that is principally concerned with the Gilles Jean. That would just be. That, I think that's my ideal cinematic experience in this current moment. <laughs> but how how are you doing? I am I'm very good. I'm excited. I'm extremely excited for today's episode. I think it is it's going to be a good one. Uh, I'm very excited for Giallo Month. I know this is something that I think a lot of people listening to this are going to be super into, and maybe people who've never come across Giallo before um, might find some new new favorite movies whilst we talk about them. Yeah, yeah. I'm I love I love Giallo. I love Fantastique, two closely related genres of film. Uh so I am I am way excited to talk about the movies that we're gonna be talking about this month. Um, but first things first, what is what's the film that we're talking about today? Um well we may, we're making the interesting discussion or decision to begin our discussion on Giallo with a film that isn't Giallo. We're talking about 2018 Suspiria. Uh, indeed we are Suspiria I'll take, I, I will claim the first punch of the day <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Ash may be maybe uh, revealing something of how he feels about 2018 Suspiria <laughs> um, Suspiria of course the 1970s uh, film directed by Dario Argento widely regarded as one of if not the best of the golden age of Italian giallo filmmaking, which is, you know, probably that kind of perfect five years of 1970 to 1975, which saw so many great giallo films. Um, There is, you know what? I'm not even going to call it a remake. I'm going to call it this, this version that comes under That's the generous. name Suspiria, <laughs> that comes under the name Suspiria came out in 2018 um, and that's what we're going to talk about today, mostly because I think it's going to bring us into some really interesting conversations about uh, Giallo as a genre or a sub-genre of horror filmmaking, the ways in which this 2018 version tries to move beyond some of those genre conventions, and some of the things that don't really work about that attempt. Um, Just some of them, though, because we don't quite frankly have enough time. Boom! <laughs> <laughs> this is this is probably the only episode. I don't know. I'm, I'm feeling I'm feeling a little punchy today. I try I try to like even when we watch absolute garbage. I try to be like, oh well, this was good, but I just mm, not feeling you, it right. Now. Hey, may, maybe it is my turn. Maybe it's my turn then to be the one who is, uh, you know, the 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 diffuser of conflict. Um, <laughs> Because that's usually your job to talk me down after you make me watch I mean, something. I mean, I find it that it's interesting that because I mean, like, yes, uh, you know, 2018 Suspiria was polarizing amongst critics, but like, 
you know, not that not that polarizing. The Rotten Tomatoes is, I think, at 64% positive and the rest critical. And so it's like, eh. But, but like, I've, I've gone on record defending Rob Zombie's Halloween, which I think is, like, one of the few movies with, like, a negative Rotten Tomatoes score. <laughs> Um, so yeah, this is, this is going to be an interesting, this is going to be an interesting conversation, but as always, um, oh, actually, should we, should we do some context? Should we do some kind of background before we get to the film recap or do you want to do the film recap first? Um, yeah, you know what? Let's, let's talk about, um, Gialli for a bit. Let's do a little background and then we'll jump into the recap and then talk about the movie. Does that sound good? Yeah, yeah. So let okay, let cool. us let us historicize the shit out of this subgenre of horror. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna need it. Um, all right. So let's let's kind of start big picture for for maybe people who who don't really know a lot about this or maybe haven't seen a great deal of it. How would you define Gialli filmmaking and what makes it distinctive? So let's let's uh, everybody hop into the wayback machine with me. We are going back uh, to to the fifties in Italy. Um, so the proper start of the giallo experience begins with um, cheap Italian thriller novels. Um, these were uh, pr- uh, called um, giallo uh, mondadori, <laughs> and they were. Uh, just kind of like knockoff thrillers. They were often reprints of like Agatha Christie and Edgar Allan Poe, but they had these very distinct uh, bright yellow covers and they became extremely popular because they were cheap and they were exciting. And then uh, Giallo evolves into its own genre after that. Giallo is now kind of the Italian generic term for anything that's like a thriller mystery suspense. Yeah, like a um, pulp, pulp crime Maybe yes, there's a killer. Yes. It's sexy. It's violent. You can get it really cheap. Um, gialli, of course, giallo is the Italian for yellow, um, relating back to those bright yellow covers. Yes. And then um, giallo makes the jump from novel to the screen with the 1963 movie The Girl Who Knew Too Much by Mario Bava. Mm-hmm. And that that is kind of the film that people widely consider to be the start of giallo as its own genre. <laughs> There's a lot of alliterations in today's episodes that are just going to cause me to just say gilet jean over and over and over again. <laughs> the giallo genre. <laughs> um, re- yeah, it really starts with 1963's The Girl Who Knew Too Much. And it's alive and well today, right? You know, we have movies like The Color of Your Body's Tears and Knife Heart that are kind of keeping the giallo aesthetics the giallo plotting the kind of the, the hallmarks of giallo alive today mm-hmm. so what what you you've, you said aesthetics so what what are the aesthetics what what are the hallmarks of the genre classically speaking so what sets kind of giallo apart is that it's uh typically got a little bit of a low budget feel to it i mean this this is kind of 60s and 70s italian cinema um it's also um it's not really proper to think about giallo in the context of like what you would call an American thriller. Like American thrillers are very narrow, like a thriller from Hollywood. That's a very narrow, very specific genre. Mm -hmm. Giallo has a lot of stuff going on. Giallo has uh, thriller, crime, slasher, sexploitation, psychedelic elements, often supernatural and horror elements going on. All of those are simultaneous. 
So giallo is this, it's this mixing pot of like these dark, mysterious, tense genres. Um, the plots usually aren't super concerned with character. Character isn't usually a big factor in giallo. And often the plot themselves aren't really that important either. The plots are often um, surrealistic in a lot of these movies, especially like um, The Color of Your Body's Tear is very surrealistic. You know, a lot, a lot of giallo movies, are they're more concerned with exploring these aesthetics and these moods. And speaking of aesthetics, um, we've got some like standard costuming elements, right? Like the killer with the knife and the black gloves. That's a stock giallo character. And then you have a lot of uh, cin like cinematography elements that are standard to what we consider giallo. You know, you've got um, Mario Bava really pioneered the use of like extreme lighting, you know, lighting that is that is often very harsh, very extreme colors, very extreme differences in colors, and then just beautifully shaped colors too. Like Bava would often use, beyond just slapping gel filters in front of lights, he would often use like velvet sheeting to shape the light and really do dramatic and interesting things with it. Hmm. Um, and those are kind of like the hallmarks of what make a giallo movie a giallo movie as opposed to just like a thriller from the 60s. There's also there's also like one other thing which I would add because I totally agree in terms of like cinematography, lighting, um, and aesthetics. I think there are also the, the big uh, gialli theme is 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 um, thematic as well. So to go along with the surrealistic imagery, you've often got very internal um, themes, uh, lots of like fragile psyches lots of like um psychological torment um it isn't about it's it's kind of antithetical to anglo-american fixed genre taxonomies where we go this is a crime film where this will be happening you know giallis are are structurally informally kind of complex and very interesting there's a lot of stuff happening mm -hmm. in them yes yeah I, I completely agree and if you want a um Analogous genre that does a lot of very similar things, um, but but makes a few key departures. The French fantastique mm -hmm. from about the same period is just some some of the most amazing horror cinema ever made, and the the two genres are often in concert with each other in terms of thematics and cinematography and style and the kinds of stories they're trying to tell and the time periods they were made in. Yes, absolutely. Um... And the other big kind of theme that runs through it, and this is probably not a coincidence if we think about the massive political and social changes that, that France and Italy were going through in the late 60s and 70s, is um, hallucinations, insanity, often both protagonists and antagonists who might be like hallucinating mm -hmm. um, yeah. is really, really common. Um there is often, in some ways, a really classic gothic convention of of um, pathologized femininity. You know, going back to that infamous quote by Edgar Allan Poe, the most poetical sight is the beautiful dead woman. Um, mm -hmm. So that's that's another kind of big theme in both of those um, subgenres, which links them both back to the kind of bigger tradition of gothic and horror, which goes all the way back to the late 1700s. Yeah, and I'm really happy you mentioned the Gothic here because I think that when it comes to um, like traditionally in Gothic studies, 
it is it is said that there is no gothic genre of cinema right because the gothic is very diffuse and very complex so there's not like a gothic aisle at blockbuster Mm -hmm. but um giallo and fantastique are two of the genres of cinema that i think are the closest to kind of expressing that classic gothic attitude on screen Mm. yes i would agree i would agree and in a way in a way that is very distinctive as well oh yeah yeah that often that often i think american horror particularly sort of struggles to do I think in in Britain maybe it's a bit different. There's the tradition of hammer horror and things like that. But oh again, yeah, yeah. I think in contrast to the, to to those two, the Fantastique and Jali have this much more kind of um, sustained engagement with these very long psychological gothic gothic traditions. Yeah, yeah, and I think like around around the time that we're getting fantastique gialli hammer horror in in america where you know it, in in that uh post-world war ii victory you know we've got the cold war going on like the american cultural attitude isn't as contemplative and concerned with its own history like like a lot a lot of the european context and we see this in the fantastique and hammer horror and giallo the, the, these are movies that are often, and we'll get to this later, I guess this is very apt, but these, these are films that are very concerned with, you know, history and the stability of identity over time. Mm. And then, you know, like what we see in America around the same time, if we're looking at also like similar budgets, similar attitudes, also in horror, we're getting stuff like Herschel Gordon Lewis movies. We're getting like The Wizard of Gore. Mm-hmm. You know, we we were getting splatters being birthed in the United States while uh, these more like, I guess, contemplative gothic films are being made overseas. And of course, there's also the kind of bigger paranoia in America at the time, right? Which does oh which, yeah, just a little which bit lends itself <laughs> lends. You know, you've got the anti-communist rhetoric of uh, McCarthy lends itself to splatter, obviously, because it's about pulling apart the body to see what's in there. Um, whereas over in Italy and France, you've got these very um, deliberately stylized explorations of psychological fragility, massive change, uh, instability, I think is the watchword. They are generically and formally unstable, but they're responding to historic and social material conditions, which Mm -hmm. is hugely unstable as well. Yeah. Um, So we should probably kind of talk a little bit about the original uh, Suspiria. Yes, yes, the original and currently the only version of Suspiria ever made. We should talk about that. <laughs> yes, we should. So, um, yeah, how would you how would you kind of introduce somebody to to? Uh, it's seventy seventy one seventy seven seventy seven the seventy seven. Yeah, and, and um, so Suspiria. in seventy seven, Dario Argento creates what is probably his masterpiece. No, I you know, would, like I, yeah, definitely. Of, definitely. Co- of course, um, Dario Argento is still alive and still making movies to this very day. Um, critically, it's widely considered that he's been in a decline since the '60s and '70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and making like uh, you know, Dracula 3D is one of his most recent movies. <laughs> like, um, but I, I would say like you really absolutely should watch Suspiria at, at some point if you're into horror at all because it is so. It winds up being so foundational to a lot of horror attitudes, and like it is, it is like easily one of the best giallo films that that has ever been made. 
Yes, I would. I would thoroughly agree with that. And like, also, and- oh, oh, one thing, one thing that I didn't mention that's key to Giallo, right? And this is this is fundamental. This can't be taken out. Otherwise, you you threaten to make it no longer sufficiently Giallo, and that's the score. Yeah, Giallo. Yeah, yeah. Giallo as a genre has some of the most moving and powerful music, right? Like the the music isn't just to an to accompany the visuals, like it is in like like all of the Disney Marvel movies. Those are that's mostly filler music. Those scores are non memorable. That's just gone in a minute. Like each Giallo movie, like the scores are just so impassioned, and like the score for the original Suspiria was done by the prog rock band Goblin. Goblin, and like I know Goblin's so good, and it's just like like G- G- uh, Giallo in general, but Suspiria specifically pulls out all of the stops. Yeah, it's it's excessive. It's that's that's really the only way of putting it. It is excessive. There is. There is so much kind of thrown into it, um, and it's it is it's an amazing film, genuinely an amazing film, especially when you think about the kind of technological and practical limitations of filmmaking in the seventies. You know, um, the the relatively minuscule amounts of money that were involved, the fact that something so kind of perfectly formed comes out of that is testament to. Like when a when a subgenre is really at its most kind of creative and you know uh kind of fresh, that's what that's what Suspiria feels like. It's yeah, the high yeah. it's the high point. It's the high point of Giallo in the seventies. I I completely agree. And there's like like the op- the opening sequence of the nineteen seventy seven Suspiria is our our protagonist leaving an airport terminal and it is easily in that is it that is all she's doing she's leaving an airport terminal and she's she's a girl from ohio who just landed on a plane in a foreign country so she's a little confused but outside of that like it's just her leaving an airport terminal and it is the filmmaking the lighting the score it is one of the most tense things in any movie i've ever seen yes no i can i completely agree I completely and that's agree. just that is just a testimony to kind of like the skill of all of the artists behind the original Suspiria, is that they could take such a mundane sequence, and and just turn it in to to this like, I, you know, it, it reminds me of The Exorcist, like like that beginning sequence. There's so many there's so many scenes in The Exorcist where it's just kind of like a banal event, but mm-hmm. it's but it's made to be deeply uncanny and deeply unsettling by everything else going around it. And Suspiria does that before you even have any context for the film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um if you haven't seen it, watch it. Just 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 watch it. Treat <laughs> yeah, go go watch the original Suspiria. Okay, now let's talk about the new one. All right. Let's do let's do that. Let's do that because like I say, I think I think this raises some really interesting questions about the role and continuation of subgenres. Um particularly that's what's interesting about it to me so let's you know what time it is you know we would have to hit this point eventually ash in your often imitated never bettered style can you tell me and all of the people listening as factually as possible what is suspiria 2018 about 
I do just want to take a moment to congratulate myself for stalling for 20 minutes before we had to talk about Suspiria 2018. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, all, all, good, all good things must end. Writing on the remake of one of his greatest accomplishments, Dario Argento spoke the following damning hex. It did not excite me. It betrayed the spirit of the original film. There is no fear. There is no music. The film underwhelmed me. And here, I think, we find this film, 2018's Suspiria. It would not be proper of us to consider 2018's Suspiria in the context of Gialli alone. The movie, in fact, has more in common with the capitalist realism of Disney's Star Wars and the agonized, listless reanimation therein than it does with the French Fantastique or Giallo all'Italiana. The film has little in the way of historic connection to its namesake. In fact, it has a strained historic connection to the historical period it attempts to situate itself within. This, more so than the fumblings of today's film, is emblematic of the problems faced by art under capitalism. The act of creation is an erotic conversation with our past. We draw from the depths of our histories to create anew. However, capitalism demands rapid, ceaseless discharge of progress. A sickening surge forward with the implicit intention to eradicate histories, cultures, and indeed any time beyond the present. If art is to be successful under capitalism, it must embrace the black cat of sabotage and become the new sinew upon which our collective memories can find firm purchase. Escaping this wheel is the very act of embracing the psychedelic, kaleidoscopic, weaving and unweaving of mystery that we find in Gialli. Today's film, so overburdened with the weights of these impulses, weighs heavy on the mind. If you want to experience the sprawling decline of one of Giallo's greats, turn not to this tired montage of still images. You would be better were you in the hands of the, of the absurd embrace of Dracula 3D. So, welcome to this e easily, on, on <laughs> easily Dracula most... 3D. <laughs> yeah, well, welcome, welcome to our discussion of Dracula 3D. Uh, John, what did you think of specifically the 3D elements? Uh, hugely convincing, actually. Especially given given you know uh, when when the film was made and um, yeah I I was I was completely I was completely uh, invested. Now, now Drac Dr Dracula three was co written by Mario Bava the the creator or I'm sorry Dario Argento, the 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 creator of Suspiria, right? Uh, how do we how do we place Dracula three D in the long lineage of Argento's filmmaking? <laughs> Now, can, can I do it? Can I get us through the whole episode without me actually having to talk about 2018 Suspiria? <laughs> okay, all right. So let's let's talk about this film. Let's talk about this film, shall we? Um, let's talk about let's talk about Suspiria 2018, which uh, we were talking about this yesterday before um, in the lead up to recording. Um, and I sent you, I sent you like a take which you agreed with completely, which is that this is not. Actually, I want to nuance this a bit. I said this is not a giallo film, um, which I think is immediately obvious in terms of aesthetics, particularly yeah. light, lighting, color palette, and costuming. Although I actually think the camera work is relatively similar to a giallo. Um, however. Thematically, uh, I think it is a giallo film. There's, there's, there's an opening salvo for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, yeah, so so in the making of 2018 Suspiria, they shot it on film and they did their best to recreate a lot of giallo tone. Um, I don't think it was particularly successful. I think some of the camera work is similar, but giallo is kind of known for its almost hedonistic cinematography. Right, Giallo, Giallo embraces snap zooms, uh, powerful color filters, just a lot of really intensive uh, cinematography. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's it's uh, not not a, not a soft touch. Eh, this movie. Eh? <laughs> um, whether I, I think the the question of whether it's thematically Giallo is a bit more interesting. And like, I think. I, I think what we're dealing with here is that this film is clearly participating in the giallo genre. However, I don't know how successful that participation winds up being. It's attempting to do some of the uh, cinematographer, <laughs> some of the filmmaking tricks that we see in giallo, um, but I don't know if it if it commits to the bit. If I'll use some Twitter terminology. And I, I think I would say the same thing about the thematics. I think we've got some some mystery. We've got some suspense. But mystery and suspense alone don't a giallo make. What are your thoughts? Hmm. I mean, yeah. So let's kind of get the big one out of the way, which is that classically speaking, giallo is hyper-saturated, high-contrast color palettes, extreme lighting, um often of one or two colors mostly um and none of this is here none of this is here for a huge majority of the film uh the color palette is deliberately muted lots of grays lots of blacks lots of dark browns it is it's depressing it's depressing um but i would say deliberately like um the great thing about a good giallo is that it's like being locked in an incredibly small room while somebody kind of turns a big dial outside, which is just marked nightmares. <laughs> um, yes. And, and that's what, that's what makes, that's what makes the 77 Suspiria so good. You have a tight enclosed environment that is psychologically extremely heated and extremely intense. And you have characters that basically, just fall kind of fall apart under the under the intensity of everything this the reason i say that this is not a giallo is that it is not particularly what it tries what it, i will emphasize what it tries to do whether it, uh, it succeeds or not is kind of up for debate is to connect the individual psychological turmoil of the story to a bigger social and political history which I actually think is a very interesting thing. And I think thematically, you've got paranoia, you've got guilt, you've got uh, psychological instability on a subjective and national level going on. You've got um, doubling, you've got... Those, to me, are all very classic Gialli themes and uh, motifs, which all crop up repeatedly. Yeah, yeah, I think think those are... um... Good points. Good so points. Here's, here's, here's my problem, Here, and I would be interested to know what you think about this, which is, I think 
because I, I, I know we've both done quite a lot of reading into into this. So I was reading up on the director who said that like they deliberately went away from the classic Gialli aesthetic because Argento, Mario Bava, um, the cinematographer on Suspiria, whose name I can't remember, kind of pioneered this look. And they and, you know, the director of this new version said, you know, didn't really think there was anything kind of more that could be done there. They they had kind of finished it. And to me, and I, I don't know, I suspect you might agree with me, is like what that smacks of is that someone thought that the classic Gialli was kind of done. And I just, I, I kind of wonder what is it that causes someone to think a particular subgenre has sort of been exhausted? Uh, the filmmaker, or the director behind the new Suspiria, I think he did even come out and say that so something to the effect of all that can be done with kind of the initial giallo aesthetics has been done. Yeah. Um, obviously, it should, should go without saying that I think he's wrong. Uh, Tavoli was the name of the cinematographer on Tavoli. Uh, yes. the original Suspiria. Uh, beautiful work. And like, I, I, I think it's nowhere near done. Like, I, I don't think Halloween remakes are done right like like if you wanted to do uh, the 90th remake of the first halloween movie you know you would need to radically depart from from the script to to spice it up and make it interesting you know mm-hmm. like like the, the the kind of like storytelling there is like it's it's complete and our reality has changed significantly since so so retelling that same 70s suburban story um, there's a mild tongue twister for you, 70 suburban story, but, um, I don't think the same is true for Giallo. And I think part of this is because like Giallo is a style. Yes. You know, Gi- Giallo isn't just one, one thing. Giallo is, it's more of a technique. It's a tool in, in the filmmaker's toolkit. Mm-hmm. And I think that like Giallo is alive and well, you know, like, I mean, I have already mentioned Knife Heart and the Color of Your Body's Tears. But like uh, Creepshow, the the kind of like serialized uh, horror shorts, oh, yeah, uh, they yeah, totally draw heavily from Giallo and Hammer and and the, and the Fantastique to a lesser extent. And yeah, like, no, but, I I would agree. Yeah, and like like the hallmark shot in in Creepshow is 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 that ending shot where the horror is fully realized, and and it pumps up the Giallo lighting for just a little bit right there at the end to punch it through, and like. Mm-hmm. I, I yeah I, I completely disagree. I, th- I think the the potential for giallo cinema is something that's still ripe for exploration and use. You just need to be ready to it's 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 a powerful artistic style, and if used clumsily, uh, it'll it'll kind of like fall apart around you, right? It's like uh, it it'll, it'll become saccharine, like the end of Suspiria twenty eighteen. I, it's, I think it's it's a from a horror a horror lover's standpoint it's it's very saccharine you know it's it's doing the all the stuff epilogue. I love the epilogue yeah 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 I think I think the epilogue is is um there's one thing about it which is interesting which we'll get onto but generally I would agree with you it's very sentimental mm-hmm. um which I don't like I I absolutely don't like yeah I agree but but just to, just to be brief about it uh, Giallo is a wide open frontier for filmmaking expression. Even if you, you wanted to break out of a lot of the things that might hold contemporary Jolly back, 
like the yeah. the the seventies uh, aesthetics, the seventies settings, the the political context of the seventies, uh, women being victimized by knife wielding men, like like these things that don't necessarily play as well here in twenty twenty. You can get rid of those and still have a giallo film. Like those are not they're common to giallo, but they are not essential. Because this is, I agree. I think this is the big issue with this film, which is that it's it's caught. It's very much pulled between trying to do two things at the same time, which is that it wants to do the kind of intense interiority and subjectivity of Giallo. And it also wants to do like basically a a Rainier uh, Fassbinder film about West Germany. And it's trying to, it's trying to do both at the same time. And I really, I actually kind of admire the attempt but I think that that creates a kind of like structural fracture that the film can't quite mend. And I think like, you know, you know, we, we've said this a lot before on the show and I much prefer an interesting failure to a bland film. And, oh yeah. And yeah, yeah. I would, I would call like, I am, I am part of that side of the divisive critic crowd that would refer to this film as an interesting failure. <laughs> so I would agree. Yes that this is an interesting failure, especially in terms of remaking Suspiria. Um, but I actually think there are some things about this, which are, which, which are interesting. I said, I said before we, we, I think a couple of days ago that I'm sort of glad we chose to talk about this one rather than the 77 version, because I think that would just be me and you going, it's amazing for, 45 minutes and then we'd have to wrap up yeah um, <laughs> i don't but, i don't i don't want to say you're right but you're right <laughs> yeah. um but yeah one of the things that the scriptwriter for this film said was that they wanted to try and ground uh the the the, the coven the supernatural elements into a specific social and political context um and they chose a really interesting one they chose one which I think is very uh, kind of provocative, which is the the seventies in West Germany, which were an incredibly unstable time. There is uh, a lot of mentions of uh, the Red Army fraction, um, otherwise known as the Biden, uh, the Baden Meinhof gang. There uh, are a lot. I think there's some really interesting, deliberate choices of including a lot of revolutionary graffiti and slogans mm-hmm. um, on the walls. Um, there is a lot of talk about um, the fact that the piece that the company is performing was was uh, choreographed in the 40s during the war um, and is entitled Volk or People. Um, so yeah, what do you think about what do you think about the kind of politics of this? Um, so let's 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 flesh out this historic context because this is um, prior to getting ready for this episode. This wasn't something that I knew too much about. Uh, so this is set during, um, as you're mentioning, a very unstable and specific time in West Germany's history. And that's a period in the late 70s known, known as Deutscher Herbst, which is a German autumn. Mm-hmm. Uh, John, would you like to tell us a little bit about what specifically was going on during this period of time that kind of sets the backdrop? Because that is our, our opening scene is a bunch of um, is a woman running through city streets while protesters shout free Biter, free Meinhof. So okay, yeah, right. Let's. I'm. I'm gonna kind of gloss a lot of this, and 
Oh yeah, um, this is Spark Notes. Spark Notes, Spark Notes uh, German definitely. autumn here. <laughs> but so late sixties um, and seventies, you have a big period of German national self-reflection for its involvement in the war. You have um, the process of denazification. Um, and you have at the same time a huge amount of like uh young left-wing groups kind of making themselves known obviously in france you have the 68 almost revolution you have similar kind of moments all across a great deal of of europe and in the states as well uh, one of the big complaints one of the big complaints in germany among the german left was the was that denazification was a cynical political ploy and basically a bit of a joke. Um, and that senior um, ex-Nazis were still in serious positions of political power. Um, or they were escaping off to the United States. But that's, yes. that's, that's <laughs> another story. Um, and in many ways, they are completely correct. So the Biden-Meinerhof... Uh, gang otherwise known as the red army fraction not faction um in german it was fraction because uh, they were a an armed fraction of the working class uh, basically set themselves up as a um often drawing specifically off maoism in particular uh, as a maoist cadre in an urban guerrilla setting um you know they 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 kidnapped a whole bunch of people they planted bombs they uh carried out killings and they were aimed at um, often hugely important people like bankers, senior politicians, judges, uh, and ex-Nazis who had been able to keep on to keep on to uh, a hold of power. Frequently, people who were chauffeurs or bodyguards or just passers-by were caught up in the violence. But as the film points out, they were actually surprisingly popular. I think there was a survey that said. Um, like one in ten people in Germany would say that they would hide them, you know, if, mm -hmm. if um, a member of the RAF was on the run. Yeah, they would hide them from the police. Um, so there is this kind of intense, like almost revolutionary struggle going on. And without getting into the kind of politics of what the RAF believed or what they kind of led on to, that's, that's a kind of general big picture context. You know, you've got massive social changes, you've got a period of self-reflection happening nationally in the politics. You've got obviously the ongoing Cold War on a geopolitical level, and you've got young, very angry, but very militant left-wing people really fucking pissed off that there are Nazis still hanging about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I would just add to that that um, German Autumn. So, so the, the, the phrase German Autumn comes from a documentary. Uh, called Deutschland im Herbst, uh, Germany in Autumn, uh, that was made about the events of Autumn 1977 in Germany a year after the fact. Um, mm -hmm. But the the Red Army fraction and th these events end with, uh, in the late 1977, with the leaders of the RAF having been captured and committing suicide in prison after um, other members of their group uh, hijacked Lufthansa Flight 181. Mm -hmm. uh, Flight 181 was ultimately uh, the the hijacking was unsuccessful. They were the the goal of that was to have their leaders released from prison. Um, yep. There there is some discussion about whether or not whether those were actually suicides or were they extrajudicial killings. Yeah, the the kind of infamous death night. 
Yes. When uh, a lot of the RAF central cadre, the, uh, I think the first gen, because there were basically three generations. So, um, whether they whether they committed suicide or whether they were killed by the state, and there are some questions. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, yeah, there are there are there are definitely um, suspicious circumstances to say the least. Uh, but it's it's worth pointing out that the original Suspiria came out the same year that all of these events were coming to a head. Okay, it comes out the same year as as German Autumn ends, you know, mm-hmm. and the new Suspiria is set during that same time period. So there's this interesting historical context that these two films are set in, one being released in the middle of these events and one a reflection of the time period the original film was released in. Mm-hmm. They were, they, you know, they were quite unapologetic about they, as they described it, an anti-imperialist struggle, um, which would necessarily have to be violent, um, and I think it is. I think I, this is something that I'm, I'm really conflicted about in, in terms of the film because I actually think the attempt to place the story within a bigger context is really interesting, um, and actually kind of has the potential to add a lot to how we think about such a kind of subjective psychologically driven experience as a giallo horror film and we've always said we've always said on the show right that political and social conditions are expressed in interpersonal often very subjective horror films right we've always said that but uh, i'm sort of with you i i i'm i'm really conflicted as to whether this film manages to do it successfully and if not what is it about this that doesn't kind of click yeah i think i think there's a lot of interesting things that are going on here and and they're worth talking about but i do think that it would be worth talking about why it stumbles or in some manifestations just does not work at all um but i think that like for me part of what's not working here is that and this is something that a lot of other critics have pointed out but that there's there's a lot of dissonance between or not even dissonance but there's just too much space between what's going on with the raf and the background in germany and what's going on in the academy right right the two do not seem to be in dialogue with each other in, in a way that is convincing or very contemplative. And I think that part of the problem that we're getting here is that this movie's made in 2018, mm. and there is a very strictly codified cinematic language where how we talk about um, Cold War problems, if you will. And that, that, that cinematic language is uh, muted colors. You know, um, when when we want to depict, like, Russia during the Cold War, you slap on that opaque muted color filter (laughs) to signify we're talking about communists or something related to them. And I think that's part of, like... So, so like, there's a lot of discussion about the quote-unquote winter tone of this film. And and I want to kind of push back against a, a lot of that because I don't think this film has a winter tone. It's using winter colors, <clears throat> but but the colors of winter do something very specific, right? Like imagine imagine snow weighing down the boughs of pine trees in, in, in a woodland, right? 
you've, you've got this, this beautiful shimmering white snow, these green needles piercing it everywhere, an amber sunset, and, and all of this subtle, soft beauty is mm. hiding the fact that everything in nature has to fight tooth and nail to not die. You know, winter is the ultimate manifestation of, of nature's uh, uh, unforgiving lack of concern for, for the things that need to survive, right? It's, it's ambiguous. It's, you know, it's almost hateful in a certain way. The cold is piercing. It's biting. It's cruel despite its beauty. And this film just looks muddy. Yeah, as I, as I said right at the beginning, this film, aesthetically, this film is depressing. It's depressing. Yes. It's, it's it's and that is a deliberate choice so i think i think in in some ways we're we're maybe being a bit uncharitable because you know it's it's an incredibly talented cast and crew like i think um so i think we have to kind of go right what what what, does call things mistakes is maybe unfair but to say that something didn't quite work as intended maybe is more accurate. So yeah, I don't know if it's a winter palette. It's depressing. It's supposed to kind of endue everything with a sense of kind of decay and and like flattened affect and it's it's anhedonic and it's and it's bleak. Which t- to be fair, I actually do think lends itself well to an opening about paranoia. I I agree with you about paranoia specifically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, okay. So here's another political thing that we talked about um before we started recording. Um, that I I want to get I want to get your thoughts on. I want to pick your brain on this a little bit. I talked about how we we tend to depict anything tied to the Cold War, and and East and West Germany are very much kind of it's a, an artifact of the Cold War, a, a split Germany. And one thing in this film that I kind of find interesting is it's using this contemporary cinematic language to depict this Cold War conflict, right? And on top of that, um, I I think there's some troubling, I'll I'll say, elements with the plot, right? Um, Our protagonist, you know, Susie, arrives in Germany to go to Fancy Times Dance School from America. She's from she's from like a rural American farm town kind of place. Mm-hmm. And and so we have we have a plot where essentially uh the, this kind of bucolic depiction of of American beauty and purity and power arrives in in a tr- politically troubled German climate and then uh at the and she, you know she goes through some struggles but at the end of the film she reveals that she's actually been the most powerful force this entire time. She wipes out all political opponents and seizes power, mm-hmm. leaving leaving the the purity and strength of America kind of thematically in charge and intact and of a now unified Germany by the end of the film. And I think this is part of my problem with the connection between um, German autumn and the events that are going on at the dance school with the witches, right? Mm. It, the events that go on at the dance school with the witches, for me, feel like a much more stock fit, like almost like a 50s film in America where, where like the, the victorious, pure American whiteness uh, destroys the evil, you know, communist influences in Germany. 
And like, that's, it's a weird parallel that's being drawn here. And I'm not quite sure what I make of it. So what are your thoughts about this tension between what's going on with Susie, the witches, the school and <laughs> German autumn? Well, this is a really interesting question. And to be honest, I hadn't really thought about it that way until you mentioned it. But what was really interesting to me is her religious background rather than her political background. Uh, because she 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 is from small town small town Ohio, but she's from a very strict Mennonite background. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Mennonites who split from the Amish, um, like a very fundamentalist vision of Christianity. Um, which I actually think connects to what you're saying, right? Because if you connect, because religion and colonialism or imperialism always go hand in hand. They they have they have done since Constantine. Um, yeah. So there is something to that, right? Especially if you see the Coven as a social, political, and religious organization, which it is. Um. So yeah, I I would sort of agree with you. I would sort of agree with you. And in a way, it's the fact that she's American is is interesting. And I think kind of pick, reinforces something that I was a bit sort of despondent about, which is that I don't know if the director kind of had a compelling vision on a political level of what this film is about. I think there's a lot of kind of possible readings that emerge from it because it's made by a talented artist and artists. Um, but what this film is actually kind of putting forward is a little... I think I said this to you, actually, a few days ago, that the ending of this film left me depressed. Like, this is this is, this is is a deeply melancholic film mm-hmm. yeah. rather than being a horror film. It's a depressing film. Um, and it's depressing yes. when it, it... It could have been genuinely horrifying. And there are moments in here which are really disturbing... Like, there's a lot of suggestive potential. But it ends up as being depressing and melancholic when it could have been, like, horrifying and impactful. And I actually think you picked up on something really important. And one of the major reasons why there's this kind of depressing air to the whole thing, which is that there isn't necessarily a political vision of liberation that emerges because it's this film is tied up in very American anti-communist sentiments. Right? Uh, communal uh, living. Um, who is it? Is it uh, Madame Blanc who who mentions uh, Ruth Bray? And you have communist slogans on the wall and you have literally the forsaking of the biological mother. You have the destruction of mm-hmm. the nuclear um, religious heteronormative uh, fertile family. But that can't ever be thoroughly liberatory. It has to collapse into its own political game playing. Um, yeah, maybe that's one of the reasons why why this kind of juxtaposition of the very personal, subjective psychodrama and the bigger picture geopolitical stuff doesn't quite mesh together. Yeah, yeah, I think that that te- that tension is. Is, is an incredibly potent aspect of this film, but in ways that I don't think the filmmakers intended it to be. No, I think that, yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting response you give to, to, to that question. And it's definitely something that kind of weighed on my mind while I was watching this, right? Like, I, there, there's, a, there's a troubling um, 
tradition of like American remakes of much better foreign films. Uh, mm. uh, the American remakes of Wreck, the upcoming American Parasite. I don't know if that's official yet, but I, I've oh, heard... Oh, what? Really? I've heard people talking... Uh, American Snowpiercer. Like, uh, no, doesn't exist. Yeah, uh, American American Cop Piercer is not a show. <laughs> but uh, we've got... Um, Oh, hang on. There's a cop car going by. Well, how timely? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. You might have you might have heard one in the background of of my audio as well. Eh, whatever. <laughs> it's added, it's added flavor. It's it's audio spice. Yeah, yeah. So there's this there's this kind of I'll call it a troubling thing where where America remakes these films, and when I say remake, I don't mean like they're they're not inspired reinterpretations of interesting foreign films. You know, they're more often than not just Americanizing these films, right? Mm. Um, Godzilla is my favorite example of this, right? The original Godzilla is, and and this is something that I hope most people know at this point, but it's all it's all about the horrors of nuclear war. Right down mm-hmm. down to every little detail, you know. Even even Godzilla's scales were the costume was designed to resemble colloidal scarring, which mm-hmm. is a very specific type of scarring that that can happen to people when they've been exposed to uh, dangerous and often fatal amounts of radiation. Right. So so Godzilla literally bears the scars of atomic warfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, the American version of Godzilla that was released in theaters in the United States. Uh, uh, it takes out all of the stuff about nukes being bad. <laughs> like that's how that film was Americanized to, to not be a threat to American political hegemony. Yeah. And I feel the same way about this remake of Suspiria. You know, they're, yeah. they're attempting to talk about these German political issues, but because it's a joint adventure, a joint filmic adventure with the United States, it, it doesn't come off quite as well. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that was probably a big part of it. I think that's probably a big part of it. Um, I think that means we should probably talk then, you know, we both we both mentioned it, we should probably then talk about The Coven as well, right? It, it would be uh, terrible of us to not talk about witches in this episode. Um, there is, there is, yes, let's talk about, let's, let's talk about the, the, the coven and the role and function of witchcraft especially in a film which is trying so hard to connect the personal and the political um which again you know i think is actually a really laudable really kind of interesting idea you know whether it works or not debatable um and yeah let's talk about i i really do like the 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 opening where we're introduced to the coven we talk like Tilda Swinton's character talks about um, Ruth Bray, uh, a famous figure in um, German women's liberation. They talk about this idea of forsake. There is no other mother. Um, They talk about, you know, their family that they're constructing. Um, And it is very much, it's very much a, uh, a vision of the kind of deconstruction of bourgeois family relations that's happening. At least initially, right? Oh yeah, I completely agree. 
So what did you think about this particular coven? Because uh, uh, you probably know more about witches than me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So there, there are very few instances in which... Usually I'm on... Of course, I'm on the side of witches, uh, my natural allies. But like... There are very few instances where, I, where I'm like flipping through my phone looking for the contact for Vincent Price's Witchfinder General. <laughs> like, uh, this, this, and uh, certain characters in The Good Witch have me going like, uh, okay, okay, maybe Witchfinder General had a point. <laughs> um, and I think, but I think like that's the, that's the problem here, right? And this, of course, like I can't talk about filmic witches without talking about Silvio Federici's Caliban and the Witch. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, if, our, if you're a Patreon supporter, we did a book club episode. Da, 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 please go money. <laughs> but um, great plug. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it would be it would be uh, foolish of us to not talk about this in the context of Caliban and the Witch, and and it's witchcraft conceptually is bears the marks of of hundreds and hundreds of years of. European and American oppression against women uh, mm-hmm. and women of color and queer women, all very specifically, right? Like, of course, we you know we could talk about Giles Corey, but the but those are exceptions to the rule. It is it is traditionally and historically women that that, that bear the oppressive weight of of how society has treated witches. Mm. Uh, one one of the things that like you know my my favorite Sylvia Federici text isn't. Actually, Caliban and the Witch, it's counterplanning from the kitchen. Yep. And in counter counterplanning from the kitchen, like like what is discussed is the fact that like in order to dismantle societally oppressive forces, people in positions of privilege, aka oppressors, need to shed that privilege and start taking up the tasks that have been relegated to the people they oppress. In the context of the oppression of women, uh, you know, men often shoulder them with all of this undue labor, right? Like things like cleaning, cooking, child rearing, uh, uh, dishes, stuff like that. And yeah, um, domestic and domestic and often reproductive labor. Yes, yes, and emotional labor, of course, too. Um, and, and witches become this very unique figure inside of all of this conversation because they're simultaneously the embodiment of men's fears of women's power, uh, or, or I should say specifically the patriarchy's fear of powerful women, and they're the embodiment of a liberatory spirit that that uh, can be invoked by women when they choose to embrace it. And I think the, the Vivovich is a great example of this. Um, that that movie is just so so good. Um, but uh, rather than sing its praises, uh, that that movie kind of depicts the fact that like uh, you know, in in order to embrace this kind of feminine power, in order to escape the patriarchy, right? Things like the traditional family unit have to be destabilized. You know, like like ascending, like like we see in the final scene of the Vich, we see like. You know the fact that embracing this power is going to look horrifying from the outside, mm-hmm. but in the witch, like you know, our our titular witch goes and like joins a coven, and now she's got this new family, this liberatory family, and like I contrast this with what's going on in Suspiria twenty eighteen because in Suspiria twenty eighteen, this coven of witches is just recreating systems of oppression. You know, like this isn't Susie doesn't gain some kind of liberatory power. Susie just becomes an oppressor 
you know, she slaughters all of her political opponents and she uh, like, like the, okay, so there's that scene, right, where um, the three girls who were going to be sacrifices in this ritual, they've been disemboweled by the witches, but they're alive because of their evil witch magic. And Susie, who's now revealed herself as Mother Suspiriorum, one of the most powerful witches in the coven, in fact, one of the three mothers that the coven um, exalts, uh, she goes up to each of them and, and just kind of kills them. But in a sort of peaceful way, they just drop to the ground and die. And a lot of people have read that as mercy, as generous, because, you know, she sent like this, like a grim avatar of death to blow up the heads of everyone else. But, um, you know, like, like that's not that's not mercy. That's execution. You know, like mercy would have been healing their wounds and erasing their because, you know, we, we realize that she has the power to erase memories, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and, and, you know, which we will get on to. Does, I yes. want to talk about that. I, I do as well. Um, but yeah, just to, oh my God, I've been rambling for like five minutes. But just to sum it up, like that's not mercy. Mercy would have been restorative. Mercy would have been trying to heal them. You know, uh, uh, she she does not end the system of abuse that is this school of witches that wantonly abuses power and sacrifices people. She just becomes the leader of it. And that's not liberatory. Yeah, no, that that I would completely agree with. No, I can I completely agree with you. I think I think you're reading on the role and function of witchcraft is really bang on. One thing I really like though is um the way that physicality is used. I really like the idea of dancing as a form of spell. Oh my god, I love the dancing in this movie. I just think that's really cool. I just think that's and uh the final performance of of folk is really is is great it's really good it's it's really cool it's creepy it's it's exactly what you want if if anything in this movie is properly giallo it is that dancing yeah 100% it's, it's over the top it's hedonistic cinematography it is so alive with emotion and feeling and like watching those dance scenes i am just like I'm filled with dread and anxiety and fear and tension. And it's all the things a good uh, Giallo movie should be doing, uh, doing to my body. (laughs) Yeah. Giallo also wants to do things to your body. Yeah. The use of the body. Um, You know, Tilda Swinton is basically dressed as Petra Bausch, who was maybe the figure of like expressionist dance in Germany in the seventies. You know, like the costume, the the way that she, her character is dressed is exactly the same. The fact that she's constantly smoking, you know, this incredibly like physically expressive movement um, is all about literalizing that fact, literalizing the fact that horror wants to do things to your body, that, that uh, magic is not something that you kind of summon. It's something that you, uh, it's not something like the distance, distant force that you summon. It's something that you use and that goes through you. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, totally. I think that's. I think that's honestly one of my favorite bits of the entire film. I, I I completely agree. Like, and I like I've been very harsh on this movie, but those dancing segments, I could just Incredible. watch those on loop all day and be so satisfied. Because the rest of the company were all professional dancers, um, which I think is a very cool thing. They had a great choreographer. Like they clearly, they'd clearly put a whole bunch of like thoughts into how do you, 
how do you present this in a way that's going to be kind of shocking oh yeah but and and new yeah and uh, like the, the the dance in uh act six suspiriorum like mm-hmm. this stuff is inspired this stuff is visionary like i have nothing but praise and even on a critical level too like your reading of of dance and witchcraft i think is phenomenal but also the kind of like the the, the spasms you know mm-hmm. like the the kind of like guttural emotional energy the confusion the hostility like that makes me think of what I've come to learn about German autumn. That makes me think of these cold war tensions that are playing out in these films. Like I think the dance segments themselves successfully do what a lot of the rest of the movie is struggling with. That's a really good point, actually. Yeah. I would, I I would absolutely agree with you. Yeah. Endless, endless um, praise for, for those, for those professional dancers. I, I was just blown away by that stuff. One thing that I read, I can't remember where I read this, is that um, there is a uh, there's a really interesting moment where they say that uh, someone who said I can't remember who it was who said it that like essentially this is a lot a lot of this is about the introduction of the kind of naive outsider into into fascism. Mm-hmm. Um, because the coven is not the liberatory space, we've talked about that. It is essentially a a dictatorial fascist space that venerates. I mean, it's very telling that dancers, right? Fascism venerates the body. We know that. Um, I, the idealized, perfected, uh, in the context of German fascism, Aryan body. Um, so I think that was a really interesting point as well that this was a coven that was about how do you how do you explain or kind of reconcile this idea of the individual with a society that wishes to push them into doing like unimaginable horror and this this film's answer is that it's done physically and it's done aesthetically that's how it happens I think that's a fantastic reading into a lot of what's going on in this film. Which, this is this is where it all comes together in my head. Sorry. Um, which brings us on to Dr. Klemperer. And there is one, there is one, there are two moments that I wanted to talk about. One, there's the moment where he's dragged into the dance um, uh, academy. And one of them, I can't remember what the exact words that one of the, the dance mistresses says. Uh because he's saying i've done nothing you've got to let me go i didn't do anything and she says no you've you've done everything like young women would come to you and tell you what you've what they had seen and you said they were delusional and that struck me as like a really powerful kind of moment there was a a strong anti-psychiatry movement that came out of a lot of german radical thoughts as well in the mid-20th century Mm-hmm. I have I have very mixed feelings on it. I have very mixed feelings on on the anti psychiatry movement, um, but but there is something kind of very telling about the way that dissent from the fascist norm is often pathologized. Yes. Mm-hmm. So if you go, hang on, this isn't right. Not only are you wrong, you are deviant. You're you're um, you're insane. You're psychologically disturbed. You have to be medicated, you have to be imprisoned, you have to be controlled. So, like, the psychiatrist particularly has a very loaded role in this film, especially when you find out about his history, 
um, which you find out more about in the epilogue, which we'll get onto in a second. That's the second moment I wanted to talk about. But what did you think about the role of Dr. Klemperer? By, by just the sheer nature of being so beholden to capitalism, a lot of the nature of contemporary psychology or, or psychiatry more directly, I suppose, is specifically designed to get people back to work. It's, it's not about healing. It's about returning to labor, you know, and, and that is kind of like the ur condition of capitalism and capitalism and fascism are deeply interwoven. And this idea that, you know, the psychiatric apparatus as depicted in this film is just trying to get people to return to the machine. Mm. I, I think is uh, almost something I want more of like this, this, this movie treads some difficult waters and that a lot of, you know, we've talked about this before, but one of the worst parts about horror cinema is that they've never treated, uh, you know, mad people very well at all. You know, mm -hmm. it's, they've always been incredibly exploitative, and this movie is constantly skirting a line with that. Um, but yeah, I, I, think you're, I think you're completely spot on. Um, yeah. So I don't, I, don't, I don't really know what I, what I, what I kind of think about that, but um, it reminds me, actually, there's a, there's a new podcast which I just saw about, which is um, called it's it's not all in your head which is um by two leftist psychotherapists talking about the ways in which um mental health health conditions are a political and social issue which i actually think is 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 really important and actually it's very important to just go this is an individual pathology but to kind of talk about the ways in which our in the well in the context of this film our social and material conditions can cause paranoia cause cause um violence cause distrust cause um depression cause, all of those things obviously those those things are those are not just the i think what i'm trying to say is that these are not just individual things right they're reflective of bigger systemic issues yeah yeah abs which is, absolutely which is why i think their comment about dr klemperer and his passivity and his you know his constant claims of i didn't do anything you go yeah you didn't do anything mm -hmm. that's that's the problem so do you want to uh talk really quickly about the i, I think this is good to round out our, our discussion on the doctor's character but the kind of memory erasing aspects of the film yeah absolutely um a lot of which comes out in the epilogue, right? Yes, yeah. This is largely what the epilogue is about. Uh, so, Mother Suspiriorum finds the good Dr. Klemperer uh, and tells him about what is what happened to his wife during the war. Um, and uh, it, is, it is very bleak and it is deeply depressing and it's um pretty moving because uh you know this is something that's been kind of teased throughout the whole film as a subtextual kind of plot point um the, the doctor is haunted by the loss of his wife uh and then comes the, the moment that i hate <laughs> the moment <laughs> that i genuinely dislike which is where mother superiorum just kind of snaps their fingers 
uh, and the doctor falls into a, a seizure, into a catatonic state, and forgets everything. Um, what did you think about the ending? Before I rant too much about this, um, I hate it. <laughs> and and oh, so, so we get a scene where where Tilda Swinton's witch character um, in in Act Six offers to erase Susie's memory and allow her to return to her previous life. And this movie is kind of treating erasing people's memories as a merciful act. Mm. When, when to me, it's like, it's deeply cruel, you know, to deny people the opportunity to ever have the most painful parts of their human condition resolved to, to just wish them away. It seems like this bizarrely cruel thing to do. But what are your, what are your thoughts? Cause I know, I know you have, you have some very intense feelings about the epilogue. The reason that I don't like it is that like a big part of this film is about struggling with self identity. Um, there's a nightmare that Susie has where she wakes screaming. I know who I am, right? She comes to realize who she is for better or worse, you know, um, and that's done on a national geopolitical level as well, right? That's the whole point of um, the the kind of leftist critique of denazification. Who do who do we think we are that we would still allow these monsters to kind of crawl around the levers of state power, etc.? And like, if this if this is ended with forcing. Uh, the doctor to confront his own passivity, his own inability to kind of find this person that he loved and cared about, his inability to do something, and then left it there. And I think that would have been a really powerful thing, right? Here's, here's the truth about what happened. You did not look for her. She died, and she died in a, in a way that you could have stopped. That would That, I think, would have been really thematically fitting, right? You can't get past history by simply snapping your fingers and erasing the memory. Like mm-hmm. the job of any kind of Marxist cultural critique is to look at history honestly and and unsparingly, and to examine our our failures and our shortcomings and our inability to act as brutally honestly as possible. Not to not to kind of wallow in in sentimentality, but to go right. How do we win next time? That's what's important about examining history, not how do we make ourselves feel better. How do we win next time? How do we avoid the mistakes that we fell into? How do we make sure that we aren't that any kind of liberation movement is not defeated? But here, what we get is, right, here is the honest appraisal of your past, and now I'm going to take it away from you. So not only is it politically, uh, personally quite cruel, and I sort of agree with you there, it's politically useless it's the erasure of history which is the only kind of tool that we have to learn from to struggle with yeah yeah and i think like this is making me think about some interesting things that i hadn't considered before but like you know in my in my summary i was talking about how one of like the primary effects of capitalism is to erase our ability to even have a history and this is literally what Mother Suspiriorum is doing at the end of the the film, and she's doing it to protect her own interests. Yeah. Well, I was going to say one of my favorite um, 
opening lines of a book of theory is from Jameson's Postmodernism, The Cultural Logic of Late Capitalism, where he says that the challenge today is to think historically in an age which has forgotten how to do so. You know, yeah. the, 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 the most important vital stru- struggle for any kind of theoretical approach to our current situation is to theorize it historically. How did we get here? But for Dr. Klemperer, by the end of the movie, you don't know how he got there because he just woke up in bed. And to me, it smacks of sentimentality. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's this way of like, oh, he doesn't need to feel bad anymore. And it's like, well, you know what? Sometimes feeling bad is a necessary first step. Yeah. He does need to feel bad. He ate and abetted Nazis. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> there was a disaster. You know, and if you don't feel something about it how are you going to avoid that happening next time right it's 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 pro neutrality and to quote howard zinn you can't be neutral on a moving train yep you you pick a side you pick a side yeah as as the song goes which side are you on and like this this movie is very clearly on a pro capitalist pro centralized power kind of side and also it's it's about I mean, the ending is the big thing which I really dislike because it's about how do you solve these problems? How do you solve them? You erase the past. Mm-hmm. You know, the 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 Red Army fraction, Baden-Meinhof thought that the way that you solved it was with, with bombs and bullets uh, as a means of raising class consciousness. Um, you know, the, the, the Coven thinks that you solve it by continuing the history of, of, of uh, the Three Mothers and propagating them but you can't do that if you erase the past Mm -hmm. totally Uh, well (laughs) i got very marxist there at the end no it's good it's good Um, i'm right damn it (laughs) this is i mean i think you are right Uh, this has been a really fun episode but we are currently uh pushing this becoming one of our longest ever episodes (laughs) Oh, we've done episodes which are nearly two hours. Come on. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. But this one, I feel like we could we could go a lot longer. Like we, I don't think we've, I don't think we've even begin begun to touch the dance enough. I think it's really interesting that we're ignoring the first like, effectively eighty minutes of this film. <laughs> yeah, this film is too damn long. This this cuts cuts people cuts. I don't need this to be ninety days long. The original Suspiria is like a crisp 90 minutes or something like that. 98 minutes, I think. And like, why in the name of God is this 700 years long? That's so, that's so, so that's, that's masturbatory. And, oh, know? I also haven't talked enough about how much I adore Tilda Swinton. Oh, Tilda Swinton's so good. In, well, she's so good. In, she's so good. She's she, so she good can elevate everything. a Marvel character. She's, she's great in this movie. She's so good. She's so good in this film. Nothing but time and respect for uh, Tilda Swinton. Yeah, I know a lot of people think Dakota Johnson was miscast. No. Uh, no, no Susie, no. I, th- I thought she did a fantastic job. I'm also yeah. a big fan of... Um, oh my god. Uh, Chloe Grace Moretz. Uh, yep. she, even though she plays a very tertiary character in this film, but I, I'm a big fan of her as like a, a an up-and-coming horror actor. Uh, yeah, completely. I think, uh, I think some of the body horror stuff in this is great. Oh, um, the maggot-filled torso vagina. Yep, yeah, is it. on I, my list of favorite horror effects. The 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 physical 
uh, kind of murder dance that they do right near the beginning. Oh yeah, yep. Is like honestly did make me wince a few times because it's this visceral uh, moment. But I do think that we have been we're pretty bang on really in some of our critiques of this on a structural level because uh, there but the, and I think the thing that makes it so frustrating for both of us is that there's so much about this film which is really promising and it could have been great it could have been really cool and it just doesn't quite work it, yeah it just it just it, it fumbles because if you gave me the elevator pitch of like mid 70s experimental dance which is deeply in dialogue with the political uh condition that is german autumn i yep. i would i would yes and like <laughs> keep going i i would like to know more <laughs> right desire desire to know more intensifies but like uh, this movie this movie does not handle these things very well um I have one final hot take. I have yes, one final please. hot take, and I don't know who to, to how many people this will be addressed. Which is, <laughs> if you if you have not if you have not seen the seventy seven Suspiria, and and you think I would, and you haven't seen this one, the order I suggest you watch them is watch the twenty eighteen version first, and then watch the seventy seven version, because I think if you do it the other way round you'll find the 2018 one disappointing for what I think are the wrong reasons. Um, yeah, I'll agree with that. Because there's a lot about this 2018 one that I, I, I really like. And even though I don't necessarily think it completely works, I think it should be appreciated. In many ways, it's a better film when you don't think about it in relation to Argento Suspiria. <laughs> I, I I completely agree. Do do if you if you watch this and you and you don't and and you th- think it has a different title and it's not a giallo movie, I think you'd have an okayer time. Yeah. My 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 uh, uh, watch order for the two movies is read Caliban and the Witch, study yep. German Autumn and the formation, dissolution, and history of the RAF. Yep. Uh, learn about experimental dance. Yep. And then go watch the original Suspiria. You'll, you'll have learned a lot and had a great time. <laughs> but no, like a, lo- a lot of people put a lot of great work into Suspiria 2018. And like, if, if like, just watch it for those dance scenes alone, you know, I mean, like you yeah, feel, feel free to, to scrub around on the old uh, uh, fast forward button there, but like the dance scenes are worth it. Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky.